We are in the process of a series uh, on introducing the Disciple Center. That series is uh, really, uh, its purpose is to remind us and reinforce us in what we are doing here and help us explain to others who may think we're a little different. Um, the first week I talked about our name and the logo and the symbols of that. Then I spoke about the idea of being a relational community and what that meant. Last week I talked about the idea of being a private uh, congregation, being part of the kingdom of God and not of this world, the idea of diaspora being outside of the promised land at this point, and the distinction between public and private um, as opposed to private and secret. Um, this week, I want to talk about the idea of being a liturgical congregation. It's appropriate. This begins uh, the church year, uh, and we have begun the liturgy of Advent. Uh, we do much that is more liturgical than many of our uh, free church and Baptist brothers. And so it's important for us to understand why we do this and what that's about. So let me again read the basic statement about the Disciple Center and then, and then we'll uh, address this. The Disciple Center congregation is a relational, liturgical, and multi-denominational gathering of households in community for mutual worship, discipleship, ministry, and reconciliation. We are Judeo-Christian in theology and practice. We function as a private congregation for the purpose of protecting the integrity of our members and to maintain focus on discipleship. Members of the congregation also participate in public ministry beyond the congregation as an extension of the congregational ministry and in concert with other congregations, ministry organizations, and fellow believers. We also seek to provide witness in the mes to the message of God through our lives and activities by intentional living and explaining the good news, the gospel found in Jesus to the Jew first, and also to all people. So, someone might ask you, so why are you liturgical? Uh, first time I heard the word, I thought somebody said liturgical, and that it must have something to do with being clean. Um, but I didn't grow up in church, so I didn't know what those terms were. Liturgy is a systematic and patterned form of ritual and worship that is used by a community of faith to teach, to reinforce, and to express the truth of God in word and deed, as understood by that community. And it's based upon the scriptures and then informed by the historic traditions of the community. And so to understand liturgy for our purposes, uh, we have to think about three things. I'm going to talk about all three of them today. The holiness of liturgy the content of liturgy, and the communion of uh, liturgy. Um, the word liturgy uh, is a, uh, comes from a Greek word that means to serve or to uh, uh, worship in the sense of a ordered worship. I uh, saw last week somebody wrote a little thing on Facebook, said, liturgical churches always get it right. R-I-T-E, because of the word ritual. Cute, cute little statement. Um, as opposed to non-liturgical churches, non-liturgical churches, it's not that they don't have an order, 
But the order is less formal. And by formal, I mean following a form. Uh, they run into habit and they run into pattern. If you've ever been in a non-liturgical church, once you've been there a while, you know they're going to sing this many songs. They're going to have a prayer. They're going to do the announcements. Somebody's going to sing. They're going to have a message. They're going to have an invitation. And out they go. That's a liturgy. It's an order and a structure for service. So what I want to do today is talk about liturgy as we understand it and as we practice it and give you a biblical foundation uh, for that for that context. We're going to begin with the idea of the holiness of liturgy. Uh, and I want to begin with Deuteronomy chapter 12, verses 1 to 8. In Deuteronomy chapter 12, verses 1 to 8, we are told, These are the statutes and judgments which you shall carefully observe in the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess as long as you live on the earth. You shall utterly destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods, on the high mountain and on the hills and under every green tree. You shall tear down their altars, smash their pillars, burn their asherim with fire, and you shall cut down the engraved images of their gods, obliterate their name from that place. You shall not act this way towards the Lord your God. But you shall seek the Lord at the place which the Lord your God will choose from all your tribes to establish. His name there for his dwelling, and there you shall come. He's speaking ultimately of Jerusalem. There you shall bring your burnt offering, your sacrifices, your tithes, the contribution of your hand, your votive offerings, your free will offerings, firstborn of your herd and your flock. There you and your household will eat before the Lord your God, rejoice in all your undertakings in which the Lord your God has blessed you. You shall not do at all what we are doing here today, everyone doing what is right in his own eyes. For you have not as yet come to the resting place and the inheritance which the Lord your God is giving you. When you cross the Jordan and live in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, he gives you rest from all your enemies around you so that you will live in security. Uh, so he says, in that day you will come to the place where the Lord your God will choose for his name to dwell. Now, the idea here is that God created a, uh, a, a format for them to worship him. His liturgy is developed in the Torah. God designed the place where they would dwell uh, with him, the tabernacle, ultimately that moving one towards the tent. So the tabernacle is more of a diaspora uh, worship center, and the temple became the permanent in the land center. And he said, you will not go just to any of the worship places that are around there. You're not going to worship me the way the Canaanites do or the way the Egyptians do. You're going to worship me in the way that I tell you to worship me so that I will be sanctified among the nations. I'm not just another God. I am the Lord your God. There is no God beside me. So there's a uniqueness, there's a holiness, there's a purpose of worshiping God a certain way. Not the way we want to worship God. I'll give God whatever I want to give Him. Okay? Because after all, I'm the worshiper. 
No, you worship God the way he chooses to be worshipped because he is creator and judge and you make him kadosh. You make him holy in the eyes of other people when you worship him the way he has asked you to worship. Now in Leviticus chapter 18 and 19, we don't have time to go into that, uh, but that is where the passage goes, I am holy for you, and you shall be holy. You shall be holy for I am holy. Repeated again in the, in the New Covenant. The idea is that there is a holy God, a holy land, and a holy people. And as we are grafted into the holy people, we are people for His name and for His purpose. And so our worship is not uh, for our purpose. Our worship is to make a statement to God. I come out of the generation of the 50s and 60s. And in the 60s, we created this notion of, uh, you know what we might want to do is open these side doors and let some of this out before we choke everybody. That one might not work because of the noise, huh? Anyhow, the... uh, In the 60s, we said, I can go anywhere and worship God. I can worship God any way I want because I got to be authentic. And to be authentic as a sinner is to what? Is to sin. To do it my way, not God's way. But we didn't think that through. We just thought it sounded cool. And we have been authentic ever since in in that kind of context. But God designed a system upon which they would worship him. It was to be a pattern. Exodus 25 following really talks about how to set up the tabernacle, the place that God would have them dwell. He said, take an offering, build it exactly according to the pattern I give you. That pattern is a reflection of the pattern of heaven itself. So that what is going on in heaven would be manifest on earth when it was seen in that context. So the purpose of worship is not for you to come and have a great worship experience. The purpose of worship is for you to get in line with the worship of God that is going on 24-7 in heaven and to enter into that worship in a reflection that is worthy of the God who has called us to himself. Now, the book of Exodus tells how to build that that sanctuary. The book of Leviticus tells how to operate that sanctuary. And the book of Psalms is the, uh, if you will, the hymnal for that sanctuary. And so God established a pattern that would be developed both in Judaism and in Christianity to follow this. So we are not to worship God in a worldly manner. We're not supposed to just find a way that the world does things and do it their way. We're not to do it as we want We are to worship God as he commands, and that pattern is found in the scriptures. Now, what is the content of that liturgy? What is that pattern, and what does it look like? I'm going to spend a little more time with this, because I think that it reflects more what we're trying to do. Liturgy can be divided up probably into four large categories. I'm going to talk about each of them. Four categories of liturgy, uh, and... They are uh, there to help us learn about God, to express God, and to uh, grow in our own faith and understanding. Now, while I said we have to do it exactly the way God says, uh, you have to remember that we're the children of God, 
And as the children of God, we have to grow in grace and in knowledge. And if you have raised a child or you're raising a child, and most of you have or are, you know that one of the problems with raising children is you tell them how to do something and it doesn't get done that way. Uh, One, they don't fully catch what you're after. They look for a shortcut. They find a way that they want to do it, you know. Uh, Why did you go down to the park when I told you to clean up your room? Well, I thought I would go through the park on the way to my room, right? So so we do that. Uh, The Bible tells us that we are to be fully persuaded in our own mind. I believe that with, with regard to worship, while God has set the pattern and he expects us to move towards it, he is an understanding father who knows that we have to learn how to do this and we have to grow in that process. So the danger here is to think that if you don't do it exactly the way somebody else thinks it should be done, you, you, you know, you're, you're a wretch. And that's not the issue. It's the issue is that we're growing in the direction of worshiping the Lord. So what are those four categories? Well, the first one is holy architecture. There is a holy architecture to the scriptures, and the primary pattern of that is, as I said, the tabernacle. The temple is according to that pattern, but the tabernacle is the pattern, and that pattern is a pattern that is found in heaven. And so even in the book of Hebrews, instead of going to the temple for the explanation of the pattern, the writer to the book of Hebrews goes to the tabernacle for that. So the foundation of all worship is the tabernacle architecture. Now, we have been probably more deliberate about that than most congregations. But virtually everything I'm going to talk about will be found in the context of synagogues and churches historically. I'm going to move around the room because we have such a visual aid that it's perfect for that. You recall the tabernacle had three basic structures. It had the courtyard, which is represented by this end of our sanctuary. It had the holy place, represented by this area here, and the holy of holies, represented by the area where the ark is. Now, in the uh, courtyard area was the gate to enter into the tabernacle, and the first thing you would see was the big altar, the brazen altar. And of course, we have placed the traditional Christian altar table and the cross here because the ultimate sacrifice is found in the Lord Jesus and His sacrifice. And so, in a sense, if you think about it, we enter by way of the cross into the courtyard of the Lord. I will enter His gates with thanksgiving in my heart. I will enter His courts with praise. When we're, when we're there, we see the sacrificial altar and we see the laver. The laver, uh, filled with water, was used for the, uh, the priests to wash themselves because they would get ashes on themselves from the altar. They would get dirt. And so as they were going to move into the holy place, they would take off their outer garments, wash themselves, and move in. So the labor actually represents the washing of the water by the word. Now, many traditional churches make use of this for the baptismal font as a reminder of that context. But we have that also here in the courtyard area. Also in the courtyard 
in the temple, they placed the giant menorahs that were used at tabernacles and that we use both at tabernacles and at Advent. Uh, those were the very large uh, uh, menorahs uh, that, were, that would light up the city of Jerusalem. And in the courtyard was also the offering box where the people were putting their money in the offering box in the courtyard of the women where Jesus was watching with his disciples. So this area, in a sense, represents that holy architecture of the, the entranceway and the courtyard. Moving from there, we move into the area of the holy place. And the holy place had on the, on the south side the seven-branch menorah, and on the north side the table of showbread. The bread representing the twelve tribes of Israel, The incense was put there that would be burned on the altar. And the priest would come in at nine in the morning and three in the afternoon while a sacrifice was being put on the altar. He would uh, trim the menorah. He would offer the incense and the people would pray towards the tabernacle, towards Jerusalem, towards the temple as the prayers in the morning and the prayers in the evening would be followed. And of course, Zechariah, as we read today, was doing just that when the angel appeared to him. And so that holy place is, is represented by these parts of the, the holy architecture. And of course, prayer altars are found uh, all through uh, synagogues and, and, um, uh, and churches because they're places of prayer. Often you'll see the seven-branch menorah, uh, well, always in a synagogue. In churches, usually you'll see a seven-branch. It looks more like an inverted V, but it's the menorah of Christianity that follows that same, that same pattern. Um, and so that then leads to the, uh, the Holy of Holies that would be behind the veil uh, where the ark is located that contains the scriptures. And in the, the containing of the scriptures, the tabernacle and the temple was seen as the footstool of God. Heaven is my throne. Earth is my footstool. And so in a sense, God filled his whole creation and the the Ark of the Covenant would be, in a sense, uh, the throne of God or the footstool of God's throne where God would dwell and his, his glory would be seen. And so the purpose of the architecture is to tie this directly to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the one revealed through Moses uh, in that kind of context. And, and what has happened in many congregations is we no longer have sanctuaries. What we have is multi-purpose rooms. Not unusual to see a basketball hoop up here that gets laid down at another time. Uh, And to see other kinds of things, it's built more like an auditorium for a concert. And a set of drums are sitting up here, right? Uh, So in a synagogue, you see see an ark. In a, a Catholic church, you'll see an altar with the crucifix. In a Protestant church, you'll see an altar with, with a cross. Historically, with Baptists, you'll see the pulpit and a Lord's Supper table and the baptistry and a more non-denominational free church now, a set of drums, microphones for everybody, and it's concert time. Uh, we have lost that sense of holy architecture. We tried to regain it in this context because I think that it helps us to, to know what the meanings of each of these things is about. Now, with the holy structure comes the uh, what's the second part of liturgy, 
which is the lectionary and the prayer books, the actual content of the worship itself. The worship system of the temple uh, was adapted for the diaspora and the loss of the temple. And what Judaism began to do, and this was finalized under Ezra as part of them came back, but the diaspora continued and Ezra and others uh, began to put this together. They took the Torah scroll and they began to section off readings. And they created a lectionary where the Torah would be read throughout the year. And then they took from the prophets and those scrolls sections that would be read, the Haftorah, that would be read with the Torah readings. And that became part of the liturgy of the word in the synagogues. Still done today and uh, follows the pattern that you guys are familiar with. Um, In Christianity, Christianity took the Gospels, they took the Torah and the Prophets, calling that the Old Testament, they took the Gospels, they took the Psalms, and they took the Epistles, those four divisions, Old Testament, Gospel, Psalm, and Epistle, and developed a lectionary to do the same thing, to read mostly through the Gospels with additional passages from the Psalms and from the Epistles with appropriate writings from the Old Testament that they took as a whole and put that into the traditional readings on the Lord's Day. And as you know, we have uh, addressed that with the portions and passages um, uh, part of their service, and we Many of us read through those uh, every year. Now, uh, every year. Now, the issue is with with all of that reading, because there's so many more books to cover. What the church did was they used a form that Judaism has, but doesn't use as much anymore, and that is a three-year cycle. And so, the lectionary of Christianity follows a three-year cycle instead of a one-year cycle. And as of today, we begin the first year again. Uh, section A. Now, out of that then came the Siddur in Judaism, which is the prayer book of Judaism to establish how you go through the prayers. And related to that is in the Eastern Orthodox Church something called the Liturgicon. Wonder where they got that name, right? The Liturgicon and the prayer books that give the services and the prayers in their order. And then there is, in Roman Catholicism, the Missal and the Sacramentary, which is the, the rituals of the sacraments, the rituals, and the prayers of the prayer book, the Missal, that goes with the readings. And then, in the Protestant world, particularly tied to the English-speaking churches, came the Book of Common Prayer. They are all based back on Psalms, Leviticus, and this structure that was already placed. And so the Book of Common Prayer, in its various forms, is the more uh, Protestant uh, version of that. Related to that is the hymnal. You guys have been using the hymnal. Hymnals, uh, in when the Book of Common Prayer is used, is supplemental. It's the Psalms, if you will, to go with the 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 uh, prayers. But in free churches, so if you grew up in a Methodist church, if you grew up in a, uh, 
a Baptist church, if you grew up in a Nazarene church, one of those free churches, they also had a structure, and the structure was designed around the hymnal. Now, if you take time to look at our hymnal, you'll see that the hymns are placed in an order around certain theological themes and includes responsive readings and scripture texts that tie into it. It's not just haphazard. It's, it's a liturgy for the free churches that goes seasonally, historically. But again, ch- many churches have dropped the use of a hymnal. They just pick three songs, sing them, and, and, and then do their thing. You know? So they've, they've lost this notion of liturgy. It's important uh, to keep in mind that the loss of all of this, even in the free church, has only been in my lifetime. Even the free churches were doing it when I was a child. I wasn't doing it because I wasn't in church, but they were doing it. So, what about the uh, Disciple Center liturgy that we do? Uh, uh, We borrow from the Siddur, the Book of Common Prayer, the Missal, the Book of Psalms, all of these things to develop our own liturgy that, that in a sense is what worship is about. The word worship means to approach God. So, if you look at your bulletin, you will see the sequencing of everything that we have done today in our liturgy in this context. We have a call to worship. The bell and the shofar are here. The call to worship entering in. We make a presentation of ourselves to the Lord, which includes reading of Scripture and and. Uh, commitment to God. We then enter into a time of prayer and testimony of God. And then we move to the time when the Word of God is explained and taught to us. We are approaching God. That we may leave this place and go out in the world as the people of God. So we, we have a liturgy that gives us a way of approaching God in this pattern that comes from the tabernacle and the temple and the, the lectionary and the prayer books. Now, the third section of the content of the liturgy is the liturgical year. And as I said, we begin the Christian liturgical year today, though the Jewish liturgical year began last September. The original structure for the liturgical year comes from Leviticus chapter 23. Leviticus chapter 23 says, You will observe these holy days. You will observe my Sabbath. You will observe Pesach. You will observe Sukkot. You will observe Shavuot. You will observe Sukkot. And what God did was He just structured, tying them to the calendar when they would observe that. So, All of the readings, all of the structures of the prayers have been geared to this liturgical year in Judaism and in Christianity. Now, the liturgical year in Christianity is slightly different in that it is not based on the biblical holy days, but based on the life of Jesus. And so, the incarnation is the beginning of the liturgical year, And Advent anticipates that, moving towards Christmas. And the 12 days of Christmas, 
some of you may not know what that is, goes from the day of Christmas to the day of Epiphany. There's 12 days there. Uh, And so uh, this movement from Advent to the Christ Mass to Epiphany, the uh, uh, time when the wise men came or the, the baptism of the Lord that appearing, Then you have the period of the 40 days of the wilderness, which is what Lent is. And then you move to Holy Week, which is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. His his ministering for 40 days, His ascension, and then the return of, uh, of Him through the Spirit at Pentecost. And so what the what the church fathers did was they linked and hinged the Christian year to the Jewish year, particularly at Holy Week on Pesach and Pentecost and Shavuot. Those were locked. Now, they were hinged very well in early days, but because of different emphasis, the primary emphasis of Judaism on the Exodus, the primary emphasis of the Gentile Christians on the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and the idea that the Jews tended to use, or still use, a lunar calendar, and the Christians were using uh, a sun-based calculation for Easter, we get this kind of blur. And then it gets worse because the Eastern Church and the Western Church views it differently. And so uh, what we have is still an overlap, but not exact days. And part of that is, if you were born on a Wednesday but you were also born on the 14th, the 14th won't be Wednesday next year, right? So do you celebrate on the second Wednesday or do you celebrate on the 14th, right? And that's all that argument is. It's just where do you emphasize the meaning and the day? Some people lock into the actual date. Some people lock into the day and the sequence of days in that kind of context. So, the Disciple Center has merged into a religious liturgical year, all of these things, uh, and I don't have time to go into all of that, but we have a full explanation on our website, the religious calendars, and we have the listing of the holy days for this year on the website as well that you can follow, and I'm happy to answer questions at the Q&A. So, holy architecture... uh, the, the actual content of the prayers and the hymns, and then the liturgical year as the structure for that, there is one more piece of the liturgy that we try to teach and try to use at the Disciple Center. And that is the biblical life cycle. The biblical life cycle, again, comes from basic ceremonies and rituals God gave in the Torah that both Judaism and Christianity have adapted to life structures Uh, so that certain ceremonies help you transition as a rite of passage. The holy days are rites of reinforcement. A rite of passage moves you from one status to another. And so we have ceremonies related to birth. And of course we have our naming ceremony and our dedication ceremony. Jews have a circumcision for Uh, the males and the redemption of the firstborn, along with the naming ceremonies and the dedication ceremonies, all done around the time of birth. 
Then you have the entrance to the commandments, the entrance to the Torah, the entrance to literacy, or what's sometimes called in the church, First Communion. It is around the age of five or six where the child is now beginning the instruction in the Word of the Lord. They begin to become literate in the Scriptures. They begin to become knowledgeable of the commandments. They begin to become knowledgeable of the creeds and the spiritual disciplines. And they begin to move towards the day when they will move from their parents' faith to their own faith through bar mitzvah, bat mitzvah, or confirmation as we practice here at the Disciple Center. Around the age of 12, 13, that normally happens. Uh, We allow it to move up to the age of 16 because of the uh, retardation of maturity in the American culture that has happened with the extension of adolescence to about the age of 30, 35, 40. I haven't checked this week what it is, but it's moving. Then there is the entrance into spiritual adulthood. That's the the, uh, bar mitzvah, bat mitzvah. and during that period, after the, the, the confirmation or the bat mitzvah, up until about the age of 30, the focus in the Bible is on getting married. And this is where betrothal, this is where marriage, this is where establishing families, having children, all of that is supposed to take place in the 20s and 30s in that context. Again, our culture has uh, elongated that uh, beyond. Around the age of 30 to 50 comes the period of service in the community and in the congregation where people will be ordained or recognized in their spiritual roles as their functions within the body and within the community uh, take place. And there are rituals specifically geared for that. And then from age 50 to 70 comes that period of eldership where you tend to do less of the doing, but you have the wisdom of the experiences, and you guide and, and, uh, and, and give guidance and counsel and wisdom to those who are learning, to those who are teaching their children, to those who are doing among the congregation as you develop that. And then, of course, the Bible talks from the 70s on about the evil days when uh, things start falling apart. You know, and we we struggle with um, with that, and we await our our um, dismissal of, of this mortal flesh to be with the Lord in anticipation of resurrection, when we will have a new body like His. And of course, rituals related to illness, rituals related to death, rituals related to mourning are all part of Judaism and Christianity in that context. So the liturgies and the services and the songs and the prayers all fit into these life cycles. So we have holy architecture. We have the content of the prayers and the hymns and the, uh, the services, the rituals. We have those things formed around a liturgical year and geared towards our passing through this life in a life cycle. Uh, all of those things are found historically within the churches and the synagogues. And we try to teach them here for, for your benefit, for the benefit of your children. Now, why do we do this? That brings us to the final point, And this one I can do relatively quickly. And that is that, the, as I said before, the purpose of liturgy and ritual 
is to teach, to reinforce, and to express truth. And it's communal. It's not individualistic. Um, I get really nervous when I see weddings that are being, can you top this, and I'm going to do things that nobody else ever did, and I've got Cirque du Soleil doing my, uh, you know, my reception and all that kind of crazy stuff. Uh, because in Judaism and Christianity, the, the ceremonies stay relatively close to the source because they are communally reinforcing that meaning. The overlap and consistency that a household and congregation engages the liturgy creates a greater sense of belonging to the larger religious communities and denominations that are often called communions. So let me do in four statements, real briefly, what I'm talking about, because this you'll be able to catch. First, when we read the same scriptures, when we go through the lection, Mary, and we read the same scriptures, we are reading the same scriptures that our Jewish and Christian brethren around the world are reading, that have been read in the past, that are being read presently and are going to be read in the future. And we are thinking about the same biblical texts. And we are meditating on the same spiritual truths and can communicate with one another uh, more richly in that sense. When we worship in the same general pattern, we are acknowledging the holy God and His uniqueness and uh, are doing it His way instead of our own way. When we observe the same holy days and calendar, we have a sense of being in the same rhythm of time and season as our fellow believers who have gone before us, who are walking with us, and who will follow behind us. And when we observe the same life cycle rituals, we maintain a sense of peoplehood as someone else goes through one of those rituals, we either look back at when we did, or we look forward to when we will do that as well. And so in all of these things, we create a, a rhythm, a heartbeat of the Spirit and of the Word of God that, that is, in a sense, the pattern of our life uh, with the Lord. So it's through liturgy and ritual that we connect to God, and we connect to each other. They don't give us standing before God. God's not up there going, okay, you did that one, do the next one. Okay, you did that one, and I'll give you brownie points. They are there for our understanding. They're there for our learning. We do these so that we understand our connection to God. We understand our connection to others. They are our relational connections, and they join us, as I said, to those who have walked before us, those who walk with us, and those who will walk after us on this pathway towards life. And so, uh, rather than seeing ritual as some dead thing, now you can do ritual bad. I talk to a lot of people who came out of liturgical churches, and they gave it up. They gave up liturgy for Lent. You know, they said, I don't ever want to do that stuff again. It doesn't make any sense. It's just stupid, and, and I'm not doing it. And then we start talking about it, or they come and see us doing it, and they go, oh, that's why we do it? See, without understanding, it has no meaning. Without a heart for God, it has no meaning. Dead ritual is dead, but living ritual reinforces and establishes what we're trying to do. So hopefully, 
this will help you in explaining to people why we do some of these high church things. They always say high church. Uh, why are you doing all those high church things? Or, or why are you doing the Jewish things? Or the Catholic things, right? We're doing what's historically been done among Jews and Christians, our brothers and fellow believers. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your